read from verse 19. Father, we thank you that you do give us the privilege to worship your great and glorious name. Thank you how you've revealed yourself to us in your word. You've taught us, Lord, about our sin, about the remedy of our sin, and Father, how that you have brought us into the church, Lord, as you've rescued us from our sin. And we just ask you that as we worship you this morning in the word, that you would open our eyes continually, Lord, to be uh, more grateful, Father, and more humbled and, and more desirous to know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in which the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you're, you know that we're learning uh, the things that the Bible declares about what a church is. Um, we first saw that the church is made up of, of genuine believers uh, who are commanded to gather together and one of the ways the church is described is as a body with members. Now, we're not all ears, we found out. We're not all eyes. Uh, we're not all arms or legs. We're not ligaments that are uh, part of those behind the scenes. We're not all joints. Um, but we're all important. We don't have the same function, but everybody in the body of Christ is important. Everyone's useful, and everybody in the body, every member of the body, is necessary for the body to function uh, properly. Uh, the human body is only as healthy um, as our body parts uh, functioning as they're designed to function. And the body of Christ is very similar. To function properly, every member must be doing his or her part. The reality is you fit somewhere. And if you're having trouble discerning where you fit here at Grace Fellowship Church, I think it just starts by getting to know another believer in the body to find out how that you might be an encouragement to him or her and how you might even pray with him or her. Along with that, the Bible makes it clear the church is a family. Around you, as we said last week, are brothers and sisters and moms and dads. Uh, the church goes beyond the nuclear family and the family or the family we're born into. Jesus said that those who do the will of his father are his mother and sister and his brothers. So those of you who have believing family members in your nuclear family are really doubly blessed. And those without believing family members are just not alone. Because we've been adopted into the family of God and Jesus is our elder brother. It caused us, I think, to stand back in amazement that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And because we're God's children and his brother, we share in his glorious inheritance as co-equals. We also know the church is a kingdom of saints, which we're going to look at that next week. But today we're going to pause and take another look at the church in terms of the New Testament describes the church. And that is the church is a building that is being built. Again, we're not talking about just a building with four walls 
and a roof, we're talking about a group of believers or the congregation described as a building, uh, but we also meet, obviously, in a building. We just don't want to confuse the two. It's clear that God, that Paul uses genuine believers as a building based on the words he used to describe the church in the few verses I read from Ephesians 2. He mentions the first, the church being a household. And here, he doesn't just mean a family. He really means the structure of the house, uh, that people who gather under one roof. And we know this because of all the construction terms in the rest of the text. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Uh, the Lord Jesus is a cornerstone of the house. Then he refers to the church as the whole structure. And he also refers to the church as a holy temple. And all of these communicate that the church is an actual building. Now, if that's not enough evidence, we could look over at 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, where Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, the church is a structure, it's a building, it's a temple, and we are the stones. We are living stones, just like Jesus is a living stone. And uh, as living stones, we're, we're beyond inanimate objects. Uh, we grow, we communicate, we love, we serve, we interact, we can encourage one another, and we can actually reproduce. Every stone in the building is connected to every other stone. And when the stones are not there, the stones are not involved, uh, the stones do, do their part or carry their weight, then actually the building crumbles. It reminds me of that game Jenga that you play with your grandkids sometimes. You, know, you get the tower really big. You ever notice that when you play with your grandkids, they always make you clean it up? That they, somehow when it all falls to the ground, they all leave and you're the ones left trying to put the whole thing back in the box. But this is part of being a grandparent. But there's always a smart guy that always takes the ones on the bottom first. Let's get rid of the foundation so the thing will crumble even faster. But every time you pull out a block, the building weakens. Uh, every time you pull anything out and there's blocks are missing, not only does it get weak, it actually begins to look terrible, looks shaky, it starts to tremble. And I do think that's a wonderful parallel for the church. Because when believers don't join with churches, and when members don't do their part, then the church also is shaky and weak and trembling. For a building to be strong, for a church to be healthy, it must have a strong foundation, and it must have living, active stones connected to the foundation, interlocked to one another, to and for God's glory. And what we're going to do today is just look at this text in three simple points uh, that, that are right from the text. First, Christ is the cornerstone. Second, God's word is the foundation. And then third, being joined together matters. So first, Christ is the cornerstone. Second, God's word is the foundation. And then thirdly, being joined together matters. Now, before we get there, we certainly have to start at the same place I've emphasized in the last two metaphors with the body and with the family, and that is to be part of the church, you must be a fellow citizen with the saints. 
In other words, you must be a believing Christian. You must be a believing Christian. We saw that when we looked at the church being a body, that we saw when we went over the church as a family. And here, when we see the church as a building or a house or a structure or a temple, this too starts with the idea that to, to be in the church, you have to be a fellow citizen with the saints. And that does not happen unless you are converted, unless you're a genuine follower of Christ, unless the Holy Spirit lives in you, unless you've repented of your sin and trusted Christ alone to save you from your sin. Not everyone, we, we learned this even in our class this morning uh, with uh, the, the uh, well, probably the first through third grade. Not everybody in the house, not everyone in the church is a member of God's household until they're adopted into God's family. And our adoption comes when we give up everything to follow Christ. Happens when we trust him to save us. It, it happens when we're justified by faith. That's the entrance into the household. That's how we begin the Christian life in the church. And the first thing we can't miss from our text is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, it's really difficult for us, 2,000 years after this text is written, to, to understand unless we have a real good building background on the purpose and the function of a cornerstone because most of us don't live in stone buildings anymore. For a stone building, the cornerstone was the single most significant stone in the entire building. It was the stone that everything else lined up to. It was the stone that supported the entire building. Oftentimes, it was the most beautiful stone in the structure always the one that was the strongest. It was the one that was seen. When people walked by, it would be the absolute most visible stone and typically the most precious. To this day, there's actually a cornerstone still in the southwest corner of the Temple Mount that's 40 feet long, 8 feet wide, 4 feet tall, and it weighs 80 tons. 80 tons. The cornerstone, by virtue of its name, functions, it, it joins intersecting walls. And the intersecting walls have to line up, but they don't line up to each other. Each stone has to line up with the cornerstone, because if they line up to the cornerstone perfectly, then what? They'll be lined up to one another perfectly as well. Which is why, as Brad prayed this morning, all of our focus, all of our attention... All of what we do, all of what we are, is rooted and grounded and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head, he's our authority, and he is the cornerstone of the church. Now think of what I just said for a moment. The cornerstone joins intersecting walls, demonstrating again that being in Christ, under his rule, under his reign, is the only thing that can truly bring believers from diverse backgrounds together. Again, different ethnicities, different social classes, different educations, different political views, all joined in Christ as we're united to the cornerstone. As long as our focus, as long as our attention is on Christ's name, his rule, his reign, instead of our agenda, then we, in fact, can walk in harmony. For those of you who have kids who are in an orchestra, uh, you know how important it is to, to, for all the orchestra instruments to be in tune. 
The orchestra has to line up to, to the tuning fork or, or the violinist who plays a particular note that everyone tunes to. And if, if, the, if one person is out of tune, then the en entire audience knows it. Uh, years ago, I was in the silkscreen printing business, and we had a particular customer that had their customer color as a nameplate. And so we printed these nameplates for them for multiple times, and their color was pretty much kept in a, in a spot that was safe. And every time we ran the nameplates, we were supposed to check the color to the original. Of course, over time, people got lazy and didn't want to go back to the original. So they matched the color to the previous run. They matched the color to the one that we had just done. And after a period of time, the boss walked out and he said, that color's wrong. And we said, no, it's not. Because look at the last look at the last run we did. They're almost perfect. He said, where's the cornerstone? He didn't say that. He said, where's the original? Where, where, where do we start from? Where's the one that we're supposed to match? Well, I, I still can't believe it, it went from a nice, really nice chocolate brown by the time it got to a dingy tan, just in I don't know how many runs, but it just slid a little tiny bit over and over and over again. The Lord Jesus, as the cornerstone of the church, is the one that we always have to look to, always have to line up with. And when we line up with him, we'll always line up with one another. Well, how do we do that? Well, we don't have to guess. It's right in the text. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Christ is the cornerstone, and the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, were no, we know, were 12 men, hand-selected by Christ. One betrayed him, so they replaced him in early Acts. The apostle Paul was a 13th apostle, as he described himself, as one untimely born. Uh, their ministry was unique, it was special, and it was short-lived. There are no apostles today. The, uh, the ability, they had the ability to perform miraculous works, and which is clearly shown throughout the Gospels in the book of Acts. The foundation of the church rests upon their work and their words. The writings of three of the apostles would be Matthew and John and Paul, which are in Holy Scripture. There's others, what we would call close associates to the apostles, uh, men like Mark and Luke and Jesus' two brothers, James and Jude, these men also wrote scripture and they're part of the apostolic record that the foundation was built upon as well. It's upon their writing. So what Paul's saying here, it's built, the foundation is on God's word. The reference to prophets could be New Testament prophets who were not just predicting the future, but who were declaring God's word, but surely refers to the Old Testament scriptures as well. So when we say that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we're talking about the scriptures being absolutely essential to everything we believe and everything we do. Second uh, Timothy 3:15 reminds us that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. It's a reminder that we need again and again that the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are God-breathed 
The apostles and prophets wrote them, but what they wrote was inspired by God. They didn't make things up in their own minds. And it's the scriptures that teach us and correct us and reprove us and train us and equip us and complete us. So since the word of God is the foundation of the church, and the church is built on Christ the cornerstone, the two most significant things that we do in our gatherings, on Sunday morning in particular, comes from a phrase we've used from time to time. We want to be rooted in Christ and grounded in Scripture. So our service from beginning to end what must be to put Christ at the forefront of everything. There should be a Christ-centeredness in our prayers, a Christ-centeredness in our songs, and a Christ-centeredness in our preaching. And of course, all of that comes from God's word because Jesus is the central figure of the word of God. Uh, some describe church gatherings in a way that I really agree with. It's, it's we, we read the Bible, we, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we preach the Bible. Or another way you could say that is we read about Christ, we pray to God through Christ, we sing about Christ, and we preach about Christ. Either way, we're rooted in Christ and we're grounded in Scripture because Jesus is the cornerstone, the one we're to line up to. And we line up to him as we know his commands, his rules, his ways from his word. So when we come here on Sunday, you're not here to listen to my musings or, or listen to my opinions or my thoughts. The more you get to know me, the more you know they're not that interesting anyway. You're here to hear from God through his word. And the day I or any other pastors in this church comes to the place where they stop preaching your word, his word, and it's, it's time to get a new pastor. I've said before that every, every pulpit needs a trap door right here. Every pulpit needs a trap door. Those of you that are old enough to watch the gong show. You know, when, when the guy is getting way off, you have to gong him and get him off the, off the board real quick. Similarly, if, if maybe Larry could come and build a little trap door here, and someone could be in the audience or someone around, one of the elders can say, you know what, the guy's deviating from God's word, push the button down the basement and out the back door. Because we're rooted in Christ and we're grounded in Scripture. Since Christ is the cornerstone and God's word is the foundation... If we're truly followers of Christ, if we're believing Christians, we do not and cannot do things to just please ourselves and our own personal lives in the congregation. All of our marching orders that we do when we gather, how we live in our marriages, how we live in the workplace, how we do our schoolwork, how we live in the neighborhood, everything comes from God's word. And since the church is built upon God's word and we are living stones in the building, this is where we gain our instructions as to how we're to function as part of the building. And, and, and at the end of the day, then, so how should we function? Well, notice finally, or thirdly, that being joined with other believers is a in the local church matters. How do we function? Well, being joined with other believers in the local church matters. This is verse 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You cannot miss the connectedness 
you cannot miss the connectedness to others in the church when you see phrases like being joined together, being built together. And it seems that our togetherness or our connectedness has an impact on our corporate holiness and being the kind of place that God can dwell among us by his spirit. Now, I need to put your thinking caps on for a minute and follow me here because it's really important. I think Paul has three things in mind here that are from the Old Testament that would come to the minds of those who were aware of their Old Testament immediately as he's writing this, as they listen to it. They would go right to the Old Testament and think through a few things, and I'm going to come back to that. Before I get to that, let me just say what this is saying. Paul's illustrating how God's presence in the temple is similar to God's presence in the church. God's presence in the Old Testament temple is similar to God's presence in the New Testament church. And he begins with what I've been referring to as my one-string banjo. He begins with the corporate aspect of church life. That being part of the congregation matters. If you go back to verse 19, Paul is still talking about you as a fellow citizen, you as a saint, you as a member of the household of God or the building. The members of the church are the ones who are being joined together and growing into a holy temple. Now, beloved, this does not happen through your personal, private, devotional time. This doesn't happen through you being disconnected from the church. And here's my one-string banjo. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Christianity is always corporate. We see things so much differently than, than the way things were when they were written. We have to understand it first in its context. To say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles' and prophets is significant because in the first century, the only way to hear from God, the only way to hear from his word was through gathering corporately. In Acts chapter 2, when the people gathered daily to hear the apostolic teaching, they were hungry for God's word, they were hearing God's word, and it was the only place they could come and hear the word of God. I mean, the people in the first century, by and large, were illiterate. And if they could read, they didn't have five copies of the Bible like you and I have in our own homes. They didn't have a copy of the Bible at all. So the only place they could hear from God, the only place they could hear God's word was to show up for church. And here, 2,000 years later, some think that we can grow more through our private devotions, through our own favorite preachers, through our own podcasts, our own books, than, than we will through our corporate body. And I think the scripture would bear out that that's not true. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Because growth is far more than just head knowledge. The whole structure, all believing saints at Grace Fellowship Church are joined together like living stones in a building. And the very fact that you're joined together and interacting with one another does in fact cause us to rub each other the wrong way. Does cause us at times to sin against one another. Does cause us at times to have to bear with one another and to forgive one another 
to love each other even with all of our warts and all of our foibles. And that alone produces growth in holiness. It also may move some people to speak to others in the truth, speak the truth in love, because some in the body of Christ need mild and gentle correction, recalibration. And there are some one day that may have to be confronted, and if they don't repent, the steps of church discipline will will go on with the hope of repentance and having them rejoin with the body. But all of this interaction, joining together over time, does in fact grow the church into a holy temple in the Lord. See, our contemporary view of church is not what the Bible declares what the church is. Instead of seeing the church as a building that weakens or crumbles when the stones are not in place, we view, view the church more as a bucket of marbles. You've got a bucket of marbles. You've got 100 marbles in a bucket of marbles. And you took 10 out. It would still look like a nice big bucket of marbles. It wouldn't even be noticeable. Marbles don't interact with each other, apart from smashing them against each other if you're playing marbles, I suppose. Marbles don't join with other marbles. And you can't build a building with marbles. But when you take 10 bricks out of a brick wall, it's immediately noticeable. It's immediately weaker. We have to be continue to remind you the church is a building and every brick matters. You matter. Your attendance matters. Your involvement matters. Your gifts matter. And we are living stones as we're growing together in holiness. And Paul illustrates this by using God dwelling in the temple as an example of what he's saying here. I'm going to walk through three Old Testament passages to, to, to show you what I think Paul's referring to here in Ephesians 2. So, so follow with me. The Old Testament temple was a place where God dwelt. Twice in the Old Testament, God revealed himself in miraculous ways uh, in front of the priests, in front of Moses, uh, in, a, in a way that was spectacular. First, let's turn to Exodus chapter 40. This is when the tabernacle is going to be dedicated. And then later we'll look at the second time when the temple was Solomon. Moses had given instructions that God had given him uh, to build the tabernacle a certain way. All the curtains were designed a certain way. All the, all the hooks had a certain way, uh, how the outside walls were built, the bronze altar to offer offerings and sacrifices in the tent of meeting, all the furnishings of the inner court, the Ark of the Covenant, the candlesticks, um, the table of bread, everything. And once all was done, notice verse 33 of chapter 40. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. 
But the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now what a spectacular wonder. God dwelling among his people, filling the tabernacle, and he continued to direct the people through his presence. God was with the people by day in a cloud, with them by night in fire, and, and his dwelling for all of those years in the wilderness was in the tabernacle. Now fast forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, hundreds of years later. David wants to replace the tabernacle. David lives in a big palace. He says, why is the Lord's house, the Lord's tent, just a little tent? I want to build a house to the Lord. And uh, Nathan comes, the prophet Nathan, and says, David, it's a great idea, but you're not going to do it. We're going to have your son Solomon build the temple. God's going to have your son Solomon build the temple. And in 2 Chronicles 7, the temple was completed. Solomon had a prayer of dedication in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, verse 1, something similar to the Lord showing up when the tabernacle was dedicated happens. Chapter 7, verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the, the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their face to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Nearly exactly like the tabernacle, God supernaturally shows up, consumes the burnt offering, consumes the sacrifices. His glory fills the temple, so the priests cannot even enter the house of the Lord. Now just think through the temple for a moment. It was the place where the Israelites had to come and worship God. They bring their sacrifices. They bring their burnt offerings. Um, they, they'd bring their sin offerings, and they'd show up several times a year for all the various ceremonies. God's temple was holy. It was purified, and God is holy. And, and, and this is where he lived, in the temple. And Paul's moving their thinking away from the temple as an, as an object or structure where God dwells and showing them that now he now dwells in each of them personally. And they are stones in the building or the temple or in the church corporately by his spirit. The Spirit of God living in them makes them positionally righteous and holy and acceptable to God. And you may not have ever thought about this before, but this is what I would call a, a, a corporate sanctification, corporate growth in Christ. It's a corporate call to holiness. And we know this to be true because of the words together in verses 21 and 22. This is so important because most Christians see their spiritual growth as simply between them and God. And yes, we need to grow individually, but clearly there's a corporate growth because he's talking to the church here, not individuals. What this means is that your individual holiness or lack of it will have an effect on the church's corporate holiness. What affects one will affect all of us. 
which is all the more reason why it's so important to come and gather to read the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and hear the Bible preach. Because we need God, and we need His Word, and we need His people. We need to grow in holiness. We gather. When we do gather, by God's grace, we are convicted of our sin. So we cry out to God for mercy, forgiveness together. When the word penetrates our hearts, or maybe when others in the body of Christ come alongside us if we're struggling, we respond to that, and this brings us back to Christ. We grow in holiness as we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Our growth in holiness is not magical. It's, it's something that takes time. It's something that's hard to even measure at times. But mark this down. Whenever you're not connected to a local church, when you're not connected to the body of Christ, you are not growing. You're going backwards. You're sliding. There's never a spiritual neutral. We're either growing forward for Christ or we're going backwards. There's nothing in between. See, so you as a stone in the temple are to be joined together to support the structure of the building. And part of that joining together and part of that growing together is loving Christ, walking with Christ, living for Christ through his word, and growing in holiness. Now, quite honestly, there are those listening to this letter read that would probably remember one time in particular in the Old Testament when God did not dwell with his people because of a lack of holiness. Third Old Testament passage, if you turn to second, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2, there's spiritual chaos in Israel. This is right after the period of Judges, and we know the period of Judges uh, was uh, bleak by any, by any uh, measurement. Prior to the reign of David, the Ark of the Covenant of all things had been stolen by the Philistines. Eli was a compromising high priest at this time. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were also priests, but Hophni and Phinehas were wicked and evil men. And Eli, their dad, never dealt with their sin, either as a father or as the high priest. Let me read from 1 Samuel 2.22 so you can get a flavor for this. 1 Samuel 2.22. Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, it's hard to imagine sometimes to think that they're offering sacrifices there at the tent of the meeting and then having relations with the ladies there that are helping him serve right at the entrance of the tabernacle. I say it's hard to imagine, but unfortunately, it's not any different than the moral failures that we seem to be seeing all the time in greater evangelicals even today. 
Remember, it was the tent of the meeting where God's glory showed itself during the days of Moses. And clearly, this is showing us a time when the temple is no longer holy. God had pronounced a judgment on Eli and his sons. And when you turn over to chapter 4, I'm just going to pick it up in verse 19, where the wife of Phinehas, one of Eli's sons, was in labor. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The ark of God being captured meant that God was gone. And as she died in delivery, she names her son Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. She's rightly saying that because of their sin, because of the rejection of God, because they're not listening to the foundation, because of not being connected to the cornerstone, God no longer dwelt with them. And as you think about how Paul lays out Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Doesn't it show that a church can cease growing into a holy temple? A church can no longer be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That there are churches who can just go through the motions. Churches who have all the outward appearances of a church. And however, however, across the front of the building, you could write Ichabod because the glory had departed. God was not there. I think the reformers would have said that about the church in their day. The Ichabod was written across it. The clergy was unholy. They lost sight of the cornerstone. They were built on tradition and superstition instead of the apostolic foundation. There's no togetherness or connectedness in the body, and God didn't dwell there. And what happened? Well, a reformation built around the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the clear preaching of God's word, a recalibration to the cornerstone. We line up with him. And we line up with him and one another. We line up with them through God's word. And as we line up with him through his word, we grow in holiness. We're joined together. We're being built together into a place where God is pleased to dwell. The way the verb tenses are in both of these phrases means we have not arrived and will never arrive. We're being joined together. We're being built together into a holy place for God by the Spirit. Beloved, God is never finished with us. He's always working, always conforming, always building his church, building his people, the members of his body, the brothers and sisters in the family, and the living stones in the building. And if we're not lined up to the cornerstone, if we're not following the foundation of the apostles, if we're not being joined together, if we're not being built together, if we're not participating with one another, if we're not becoming more holy, 
and will not be a church where God will dwell, which is a constant reminder again of our need for Christ, constant reminder of our need for the cornerstone. We did learn the catechism question this morning in Sunday school. What is our only hope in life and death? And the children's answer was, we're not our own, but belong to God. That's the answer for us as individual stones. But it's also the answer to the corporate church. We corporately are not our own, but we belong to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one who grows us in holiness. He's the one who dwells in us by his spirit. And he's the one that we give praise and worship and adoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these amazing metaphors for the church. Lord, and I just ask you that as we continue to reflect on the fact that you are the cornerstone, that you're the one that everybody must line up to. You're the one that brings intersecting body parts together, that you're the one who the foundation's laid, and the foundation is before us here uh, in your word. I pray, God, that you would help us, uh, first and foremost, as leadership, to line up to you, line up to, to, to Christ, line up to your word. And I pray that as we do that, that others would line up as well, Father, and that we indeed would be following you with all of our heart and soul, that we would be being built together and joined together in unity uh, in Christ. And Father, as we're built together in unity, we'd also be growing in holiness, that we would be a place where you would dwell. God, that all of us as believers would be faithful to your calling and faithful to your membership and faithful to you. And I pray, God, that you indeed uh, would build your church for your glory, for your purposes, that others might look and see uh, that God is here. In Christ's name we pray.